We are rocking here at Real Tales from the Bar Side. This is the podcast where we talk about the shit that goes on in the bar, in the restaurant, with people who own the bar, own the restaurant, run the bar, run the food, do everything and see everything. Don't ever do something or say something that you don't want seen, especially in New York at the bar, because we're watching and talking about it here on Real Tales from the Bar Side. Welcome to another episode of Real Tales from the Bar Side, the show where we talk about what's going on in the bar. And today, with a special guest, we talk about what's not only going on in the bar, but what's going on in the coffee shop. We've got bartender versus barista going today. It's big things happening on the podcast. I'm Matt Flynn. If you give a shit about me as an actor or in the professional realm, it's Matthew C. Flynn. But for t- today, I'm Matt Flynn, and joining me is... Dear friend, writer-director of The Frog March and the upcoming The Suggestion Box, Jonathan D'Ambrosio. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. Going to call you John again. That's, that's John fine. D'Ambrosio for uh, today, professionally, if you care. The man's Jonathan D'Ambrosio. So, let's get in the Wayback Machine. Let's get in it. Maybe not too far back, but uh, <laughs> Barista. Barista, yes. Running things at the coffee bar. Still a bar. It is still a bar. Yeah. Got some real tales for us? What's going on, man? Talk to me about where. Where did you start and when? Where did I... Well, as you know, I grew up in a coffee shop because my family ran a coffee shop. True. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I never put that together. Okay. So there's that. So I was around coffee most of my life and then got away from it for a while. And then they pulled me back in like the godfather. And then I went off and I was working at an upscale coffee shop in Ridgefield, Connecticut, which was really cool. So, Ridgefield, that's pretty wealthy, right? It is. It's very wealthy. Okay, because I'm on the Upper East Side, and the bar life, I, I, it's, it's still so different. When I go into coffee shops around there to get coffee before work, I just I don't see the same people I see at the bar. Right. So, it's a different crowd, but I think the affluence breeds a similar level of entitlement in ways. <laughs> and also, but I don't know, I've noticed that from my perspective anyways, and that's why you're here, I want yours, that people tend to just be a little more reclusive in affluent areas and coffee shops. It's it's weird because I feel like there's a very, you have like people who are very social and open, and then there are people who just like don't want to be bothered. Yeah. Like, but then there's like the eccentric, like millionaire who likes to come in and like, just like talk like he's like a teenager. (laughs) So I feel like there's like a spectrum there. Do people hang out? Is it people that are just, will they literally stand by the counter and talk to you? Yeah. Okay. So it's like being a bartender in a lot of ways. Right. But I felt like there was, there were actually a few people at the coffee shop, like well-known people. I don't know if I, I don't want to name drop, but like they're Name drop. Come on. Shit. (laughs) Well, no, you, like one person who would always come in is Frank Whaley. Oh, I love him. And Frank was, Whaley. And I didn't even recognize him the first few times because he was just very quiet and I didn't really even like look up at him. Swimming with Sharks. Right. I know we've got the Pulp Kevin Fiction. Spacey madness going on right now, but it's he and Kevin Spacey. Right. Frank Whaley's amazing. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, he plays the kid and say what again? <laughs> oh my God, that's Frank Whaley. Yeah. I never put that together. Okay, cool. So Brett, look at the brain on Brett, Frank yes. Whaley, cool. So like he would come in, and then Christopher Walken came in when I wasn't there because that's unfortunate because I could have done stop stop stop. I could have done my Christopher Walken impression. You can't jump from Whaley to Walken. It's not fair <laughs> yes. to Whaley. Stick it's with him, fair. man. Is he a good yeah. guy? 
I mean, he was like very quiet. He like he was very polite, but like he wouldn't like he was very quiet. I'd always run into him and like I'd always see him in like the grocery store and stuff. But he was like a very quiet, polite guy. And you had some really cool run-ins with. Who was it? There was somebody that came in there that was like super oh, nice and Oh, awesome. Michael Ian Black. Michael Ian Black. Yeah, he was very cool. Yep. He's He'd always be like tweeting like in the coffee shop. <laughs> Which was really funny because you'd like, be reading his tweet and he'd be like like commenting on people like in the coffee shop like that had no idea he was tweeting about them while like, you know, like 200,000 people were reading about it. That's like, amazing. It's a weird year what, that we live in. What was the one thing he said? He said uh, this woman just referred to her son as an old soul. And he's like, and now I have to clean up all this vomit. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, were you reading his Twitter yes. wow, from behind the bar? That's fucking great. Because he's just in there like on his laptop or his phone, like tweeting. It was cool. I just love hearing that shit. And I think everybody else does too when people are great. Or they're quiet and they're just yeah. relaxed and normal and they the keep to themselves. People. And they're just not dicks. Yeah. I'd probably be a dick if I were like famous. And Yeah. I... I wish I had the balls to name drop the shitty celebrity storytellings that I have from oh, my bar. Come on. I don't. I can't. I can't. <laughs> I care too much about working professionally. But there's one guy that's huge in New York as an actor on television and total piece of shit. Total like, piece of shit. Like so, came in and was like like trying to dog my mom. Oh no. My mom who was hanging out in the corner like Godfather kissing the ring to all my friends that came in and just hung out. And it was just such a cool time having her in and he walked in, beelined it for her, had some weird bait and switch play where he sent this guy in his seventies that he was hanging with, this old man, this like guy that just not a good scene over to flirt with the 26-year-old girl my mom was talking to so he could come in and save the day and introduce himself to my mom. And it was just super sleazy. My mom was like, I am dripping with filth from being around that man. But that's all the story I can tell. All right, because, well, again, you're I have professional more. aspirations that reach beyond real tales from the bar side. Yeah, you're going to tell me more when we turn yeah, on the mics yeah, off. Yeah. Uh, if you send me a DM at, at Tales Bar Side... <laughs> On Instagram, I'm still not going to tell you, but I'll read it and I'll probably respond. So, okay, walking. You got to have a story about walking, even if you weren't there. I don't have a story about walking. He's very, I, I heard he was very strange and offbeat, but like, I mean, what were you expecting? <laughs> That's all they gave you? Yeah. Oh, like, I, I think everyone was just intimidated because you try not to. <laughs> I just want to hear that order. Wait, you man. just want to fucking hear him order coffee. Like, yeah, like. <laughs> I was going to try and do it. I don't know if I can. <clears throat> Please let me get a cappuccino, <laughs> soy, something like that. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Any good walking impersonation is great by me. Gooch used to do a good one, too. I love Gosh. a good walking. Oh, man. So Ridgefield is home of what? Besides affluence, is it really just equestrianism? Kind of is that even with that? Is that how you say the word? Like, like there's a lot of horse riding and stuff, and there's okay. nothing out there. It's it's, so it's it's where people who own companies basically commute from into the city to run like okay. large company side, and then there's just like you know, you know, like unemployed, like well financed single moms who. <laughs> So, so we, the, the Whaley's and the Watkins and the Blacks of the world, they're just hanging out and commuting into the city for, for bigger yeah. jobs. It's kind of a respite community. I think so. I don't think there's anything like really, I mean, there's Norwalk and Stanford. I'm sure people work in there, like the cities, but there's nothing really in Ridgefield 
that's like worth noting. I know it's got a big like horseback riding thing. What's the word for that? The equestrian industry? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Equine. 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 <laughs> Pulled that from somewhere. Oh, man. So, I don't know. What are you thinking about bean? Just about coffee. Just about like what you've seen, what I do. You've been in fucking bars aplenty. What do you see as the difference? I don't, um, what's the difference? Well, I used to bartend a little bit for like, I bartended for like six months to a year. When did I you here. really? Yeah, I, I didn't did. know that. Okay, cool. Where were you? Uh, in Connecticut, just at like bars, like in like Nor- Norwalk and stuff. But, um, it's different. Cause like, I feel like people are very, there are certain people who are very particular about their drinks, both for coffee and alcohol, mm-hmm. like make this stronger. This is too strong. Yeah. But the difference is I feel like with alcohol, you just make the first drink and then after that, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas that the coffee needs to be consistent. Cause like if one tastes different than the other, they're going to be like, there's something wrong with this. One. That's true. And I'm that dick too. That's the thing for all the complaining I do about people at the bar. I, I order the same way when I do coffee. Because yeah. I'm medium black iced. And if, it's not filled to the brim. I'm like, come on, man. I'm ordering coffee. I'm going to need every drop. Can you fill that right up? And I'll give it back to them and they'll fill it up. And I'm kind of like, I feel like a dick, but it's how I drink my coffee. And you're right. I go to Dunkin' Donuts because it's the same fucking shit every time. It's not necessarily good, but like, it's the same thing. It's consistent. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I feel like there's this whole culture around coffee and like alcohol, you know? People like wine tastings, coffee tastings. There's like, you know, people who... There's a whole, I don't know, people fetishize the drinks. Yeah, it's true. Ever since the hearts and the foam started with cappuccinos and that bullshit, right. did you do that? Yes, latte art, yeah. It's tough. There's some people, that, there's like people who can do like the Ghostbusters logo. Oh, I'm sure. It's like <laughs> smoke rings. Really cool. It's crazy. Right. Yeah, it's turned into some wild shit. I just, I think for me, the biggest thing that I see is like, I can't get rid of customers. For better or worse. And a lot of times I'm, that's why I'm really curious when you say there are some eccentric millionaires that stick around and they're just like, oh yeah, let's talk and I'm going to act like a teenager. I think they're the fun ones that I feel like, like drunk is a whole other, because the people are sticking around and are drinking more and they're just getting more like uninhibited. Yeah. (laughs) And you're dealing with people that haven't had their coffee yet, which although cranky can be really just introverted and just like soup Nazi in line, sort of hand their money, stand to the left, collect their coffee and go. Kind of yeah. thing. There was one guy who would always be around, and he was like, he. I guess he moved from California, and he would say the most like outrageous thing to women. He was like in his fifties, and there was this girl. She's probably mid twenties, very attractive, just got a yoga class, dressed, you know, in like leggings and stuff. And uh, she ordered her her drink, and then she was waiting, but she dropped her change on the floor, so he, she like bent over to get the quarter. And he like walked over to her and he goes, he was like, I was wondering how far you could bend over. Damn. And like thought it was very like, like charming in a way, but I was just like, like I couldn't even process like how outlandishly inappropriate it had been. And he would always say like, and then there was another morning, it was like 5 a.m. I was opening. He had came in. I was just, I, there was this uh, barista from another coffee shop who'd always stop in in the morning. Attractive. And we were talking at the counter and uh, he came in. He goes, "Is this your girlfriend?" And I said, uh, "I said no, like no, she's just a friend." And he goes, "Yeah." He's like, "Who would date her?" And I was just like, "Why would you say that to anybody?" It's so strange. Just like, it's so strange. 
And one of the things I've noticed as a bartender is how objectified I am. And then I take a step back and I'm like, wow, if I multiplied how I feel right now by 500,000, I could probably touch how any fucking woman feels on a regular basis just walking through the streets of the world. It's fucking sick. Yeah. It's really sick. And you were raised... By a wonderful woman. I was. And I was raised by a wonderful woman and another wonderful woman behind her and two wonderful aunts. And it's like, yeah, we grew up with women. And to me, it's just, I've always had women on such a pedestal as a teenager to a fault where I was like, whoa, my needs are base and there's no way that they could feel these urges that I feel. And I feel like I might as well have been a fucking Catholic. I was so shamed just from what I felt. But it's nuts to just think about women in those terms when you see it from other people's perspective like how do you do that how do you fucking drop change on the floor and then like that's bad enough john candy and splash you saw it when you were a kid maybe it's stuck haha fine it's still terrible but to follow it up with that yeah crazy right what the fuck yeah and there is there's always like really uncomfortable like he would always just kind of like talk like there would be times when he'd be talking to these like he'd always just strike up random conversations with women and i always be sitting there like bracing for impact i'm like please just to, like let, let's take it easy like in my head like please don't say anything that yeah. i need to like intervene let's keep it cool but most of the time he was fine and he would just kind of like be on the brink of saying inappropriate which was like okay kind of because you can't really step in unless somebody's really out of line right and you don't really have recourse in a coffee shop. Like, all right, right. buddy, I think you've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you cut off. Yeah. You've had enough dark roast. <laughs> exactly. Like, what the yeah. hell do you do? You're just like, uh, you're very alert and creepy. Yeah. And he was, you know, affluent. He had money and he was a regular. So it was like, repeat business. So that's another difference, I think, is to just, I have the ability, even if it is kind of ridiculous, to jump in and just say, I think you've had too much. You need to go. Yeah. Have a good night. And your hands are a little more tired where it's just like any other business for the most part where you just have somebody acting inappropriately but without serving the mind-altering substances in any way. Right. Yeah. God, that's strange. It's it's just entitlement, I feel like. That was a lot of the things I saw in Ridgefield. Although, I don't know if it was just like because I know it's a rich area and I was looking for it. It's like you kind of have that mentality so you're looking for it. Yeah. Because if we were anywhere else, like, I wouldn't be thinking of it. Like, if we were, like, in Brooklyn, he would have just been, like, some guy from the street that it really had no context for, mm-hmm. like, acting like that. But he still would have done it. Oh, man. It's just weird. I keep going back to and it's fucked up. You know, we just referenced Frank Whaley. We got to Spacey with Swimming with Sharks. And now, you know, we're talking about the treatment <laughs> of women. Team. It's just, it's fucking discouraging. And I feel like, I don't even know why we're going here, but I'm taking it there. Like... I just feel like if there's a silver lining at all in the Trump administration, it's that this shit's starting to come out. And I feel like that's necessary. I feel like that's like such an undercurrent. We've been holding this shit and burying it for so long with the big wigs and the big names, letting them get away with it. Not anymore. Like this is just the people's kind of uprising. And I dig it. I dig it a lot too. I don't know that it would have happened if Hillary had won. It's an interesting interesting thing to kind of think about, right? Because it's like... They wouldn't have been as angry, so they might have tolerated a lot more. And they being people who were pissed, not any specific group or anything, but I don't know, man. What do you see? Because you're in Connecticut, right? I'm in New York, and people in Massachusetts from back home have have hit me a couple times with like, well, I mean, you're in New York, liberal haven. It's like, dude, you're in a fucking liberal state. And it's weird. The South Shore where I grew up is kind of a conservative 
uh, like just little sidebar of the rest of the state more so than the others so you get a a decent mix which i think is healthy and fun to kind of go home and talk to people about but they they'll they'll say shit like yeah yeah well you see everything from the liberal side because you're in new york but what's connecticut like i don't know like i don't really see and maybe i'm just naive I don't know if I am like, cause like I could never see something like, cause I work for like a company, like I work for a pretty decent sized company. I never would see anything like that happening like there. It's interesting cause I was talking to somebody about when I, when I worked out in LA, when I'd see things that weren't like that, like when people were mistreated just like for like, you know, other reasons, just for like, you know, not getting the coffee right or something like that. And it, like, made me uncomfortable to see people mistreated for, like, things that really didn't matter. Like, it was just, like, people just being, like, you know, celebrities being insecure and taking out their their insecurities on, like, you know, their lessers, basically, I guess. And it's funny for me because I'm, like, it made me uncomfortable, but I didn't speak up. So I'm wondering if I I saw something of that caliber, if I would have said something. I'd like to think that I would at that point, but, like, I don't know because you're afraid because you're just surrounded by people who are very powerful and you're, like, you know... It doesn't matter if I open my mouth or like, am I just making the situation worse kind of thing? It's such a fucked up line to walk yeah, or not walk, whatever you choose to do. Yeah. I've, I've, I've been in uncomfortable situations and I think in theory, I've always been self-righteous. I'd always do the right thing. And then you put in a fucking strange situation right. and you're like, what do I do? It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. But now I think the cultural, culturally accepted thing to do is to speak up. Yeah. And it's funny. I lo- I, I'm plugging Michael Rappaport's podcast. I am Rappaport. <laughs> whenever I can. That motherfucker is a riot. And I'm listening to him. And he does this thing uh, called the shame game. Where he talks about people who send him DMs that are just wildly racist, derogatory, hateful. And he calls them out. He'll go on Instagram, he'll throw their account, their name, their phone number, if they're <laughs> dumb enough to actually list it on there. That's amazing. And he's like, you want to get slick, motherfucker? I'll show you slick. Like This this motherfucker hates blacks, hates Jews. Look at this. Oh, and here he is with his son, all nice. And it's just, it's, it's, and they delete their accounts instantly. <laughs> and he thing. just, he shames him into all this shit. So he calls people out about ratting people out. He's just like, motherfucker, this ain't the departed. This ain't good fellas fucking ratting people out. What the fuck are you talking about? And it's like, it's kind of true. And I grew up just feeling, oh, I can't say anything, man. I'm not going to rat anybody out. But there's a huge fucking difference between tattletaling and ratting people out for something and standing up for yourself for another person. And I think that's the cultural shift that I'm seeing. Right. Dig it. It's like, all right, yeah, fuck yeah. Stand up. Stand up. I like that. So you don't see too much of that shit at the coffee shop, though, right? There's no... No, that was, like, outlandishly... I mean, I'm sure I was probably the one perpetuating it. Other than that, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, because I'm, like, one of those people who doesn't have a filter, and I still couldn't see myself saying, like, inappropriate things like that. And if I'm seeing it, like, and I think it's wrong, that's a, that's a whole other red flag. Like, I'm wondering how, like, somebody who isn't as desensitized as me and seeing some shit, like, would feel about seeing that stuff. I think it's important to be a good person. But it was funny because you were talking about being objectified by when being at the bar. Yeah. And so there are times when there would be like customers that would make me uncomfortable, mm-hmm. like just like flirting, like trying to keep a conversation going. I'd be like, all right, I know I get a vibe here. Yeah. 
And so we had, uh, you'd basically pass a customer off to somebody else behind the bar and you'd be like, I have to go get the dark roast. You'd tap them on the shoulder and be like, I have to go in the back and get the dark roast and walk away. Oh, and that was like a code for, yeah. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's fucking cool, man. Yeah, where I'm at, it's like a 23-seat bar, and it's long. It's just a long-ass bar. So even if I'm enjoying talking to you, I typically have to walk away. So it's really stick and move. I don't have to worry about that shit. I'm trapped back there, but I can always duck people. But the dark roast moved. Because I've met so many adorable, fucking beautiful baristas that it's like, wow, I would like to know you better. But it's like I'm ordering coffee. The fuck am I going to do? It's like stand here and be like, so where'd you grow up? It's just strange. It's a weird move, so I don't do it, and I just carry on with my day. Yeah, that's a that's a tough place to pick up a fucking woman. I bet. <laughs> well, like as a barista. Yeah. Oh, is it a tough place to pick up a guy? I mean, have you ever been picked up? Did you go on a date with anybody, a customer? I didn't. I mean, there. I I got hit on plenty, but um, no, I never did. Because I always felt like they, there was something unprofessional about it, like crossing that line. Like I, I don't know why. That's awesome. Like, even if I thought there was, but it was usually by like, re, like older women who were just like, like married. Yeah. And like, re, like it was just really uncomfortable. Yeah. That's disheartening too, because yeah. I, I, I get a lot of that. A lot of the board people that are just bored and they're around and they're like, Ooh, intrigued. And it's just like, Oh man, I'm not into that. Don't drag me into that shit. Yeah. You chose to marry somebody. That's great. Honor that and go with God. You know, it's a little. It's strange. It's not my world, but it's actually funny because one of my favorite stories because I ran into one of the married women from the coffee shop at a bar. And I remember telling you about this because I said because she gave me her number. I said a married woman gave me her number tonight, and you said this is an inspiring story. You've inspired me. I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna memorize the number for a divorce lawyer. And when a married woman gives me her phone number, I'm going to give her the number for the divorce attorney. I said that? Yes. Nice. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm losing my shit, dude. I used to remember everything. I have no fucking recollection of this at all. It's funny. That's a good move. I'm going to do that still. <laughs> You've inspired me I'm again. Glad, I'm, you know. Second wave of inspiration. It's just messy. It's just fucking messy, man. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Just handle your business. When you're single, come talk to me. Right. Well, I think it's like, I, I mean, I, I'm totally making assumptions here, but I imagine because it's like rich women don't want to get divorced because they have it good. I don't know. And rich men. But too, I don't like, know either because from everything I've heard, again, we're totally speaking out of our asses right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. So hold I us mean, to 90, none of 90% this of the because time. Because we're admitting we don't know yeah. any of this from experience. But I've, I'd imagine that if you're really... You're you're married to a really rich guy, then like a settlement might be decent size, right? Like I don't know, I, I don't know what's, I don't know. Like I don't know what married men are like hitting on women because I don't get hit on by married men. So I watch I a lot of it. Do you it's really? Fucked up. It's fucked up, and even the ones that aren't, and they're just sad. And there are a lot of those too, where it's just like you know the situation's sad, and you get to know the guy, and you personalize it, and all of a sudden it's human. And it really is just sad, and you see the affair that he's having with a 26-year-old girl, and it's not necessarily passionate and just kind of full of lies. It's just sad, because this is this man's life. And it's like, oh, God. And again, I don't really make a habit of going out of my way to judge people. Like, live your life the way you want to live it, but don't involve me. 
That's the thing. I'm not going to insert myself into some fucking wild situation with an unhappily married woman and a crazy, jealous husband or whatever the case is. Right. Like This isn't kind of me telling people how to live their lives. It's me telling people, stay the fuck out of mind if that's how you're going to roll. I'll serve you a drink, but be on your way. Because it's tough. It's just, it's tough to watch. This business breaks my fucking heart. How often do you see that? Too often. Like every day? I have regulars that like, they just come in and side up to the bar with me to watch this shit. Because it's, it's like a popcorn feature. Ugh. It's tough. It's tough. I like to take breaks on a really upbeat note. So <laughs> while we're here. Why don't we uh, come back right after these messages? So there's a wacky, wild, really funny, tongue-in-cheek, straight-laced new podcast out called Conversations with Superheroes. It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, The host, Max Murphy, interviews fictional superheroes in a fictional universe that's much like our own, but with problems and chaos and madness that is not necessarily what we're going through at the time. Some of it is, some of it isn't. It's a social commentary, it's a lot of fun. And come check out these superheroes, these supervillains, their hopes, their dreams, and most interestingly, their fears as they try and conquer what your everyday humans face as superheroes. Conversations with Superheroes is on iTunes and SoundCloud, so join the host, Max Murphy, and check it out. And we're back. I've taken my Zoloft. We're upbeat a little bit more. <laughs> we're, uh, we're flying high. All right. I think I might be a depressive. We'll talk about that off the air. Uh, so not only are you a barista, formerly... But you are also in sobriety. I am. A man in recovery. I am. You've been sober how long? Uh, 12 years. And by the way, this isn't some fucking, I'm going to spring sober people as a subliminal hint to people <laughs> with an agenda. This is, I'm friends with a lot of sober people, friends with a lot of actors, a lot of the guests that come in. It's going to be the case. Some, there'll be dual threats. But, and, and you are a fucking dual threat because you were in the Frog March. I was. Your I own remember film, that. Your own film that you wrote and directed uh, about addiction. Which is a perfect like segue between the big book and like, you know, just the alcoholic who likes to like shoot, write, light, act in. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that Design earlier. I have a little bit of costumes. that in me too. <laughs> For, and it's funny because you reference uh, just the alcoholic that likes to do it all and then wonders why the show doesn't come off well <laughs> when he insists on lighting and acting and directing and all this. And you brought me on to produce it with you. Right. But then constantly referred to me as your Tyler Durden, ergo, yeah. making just it more all about you. Yeah. I'm just a I figment mean, of your imagination. Right. Like yeah. an extension of myself. Exactly. Right. It's interesting. We are drunks. We are. Nobody will accuse us of anything else. <laughs> so um, let's jump to sobriety, then parallel in it with the Frog March, because I think they kind of DNA strand together a little bit. I like that. Um, you got sober 12 years ago? 12 years ago. Okay. Where, why, and how? Where, why, and how? Uh, where was LA? Okay. Why? Because, like, it just wasn't working. Yeah. Anymore. Okay. Let me phrase that a little better. That one's on me. Uh, what caused this, like, bottom wise? Where were you? 
Um, I mean, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of like old stuff surfacing. I wasn't doing too well socially because I realized like there was like drinking was just affecting a lot of my relationships and it was finally becoming abundantly clear to me Mm -hmm. that it was like my like drinking and use of drugs that may be affecting a lot of like my anger towards people and how I was interacting with them. Um, and how is just that mysterious thing that just like moves us all, I guess. I mean, some people call it higher power, synchronicity, I don't know, the universe. Like, there's just, I don't really know how, but the program, there's a lot of different things at work, but mostly AA. Okay, so you got into 12 Steps, the, right. re- the recovery program, 12, right. and uh, how did you, what was your introduction to that? Because to me, my mind was so wildly different from the stuff I hear. I'm curious about other people's experience well, with it. It's funny because me and you were recently out in LA and we went to an LA AA meeting, which was like, they like jammed after this. <laughs> like yeah, no, a literal jam session. They got they into a jam session. And they guitar. said, yes. And they started like singing and jamming. And uh, it's so funny looking back now, how that was very much like the tone of the kind of AA meetings that I was going to when I started going. But I think in my mind, I was in such a, like a bad place at that time that I was just like looking at things darkly. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, oh yeah, like things were kind of upbeat with people around me, but like I was miserable at the time getting sober. Um, just like at the initial like uh, thing. But I, I just remember going to the room and, and feeling like I just didn't, one, I didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I mean, even though you, you, you have that realization to yourself. It's different saying it aloud to other people. Yeah. And then... Then um, this was something that you were really just kind of... I think I, there was an inside voice saying, yeah. I got to go to this. Nobody forced you in. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, I mean, there were people who had tried to get me to go when I was back east. Okay. And I was like, mm, no. And they're like, yeah, just come on and see what it's like. And yeah. I was like, mm, no. <laughs> uh, but then I felt like it was like I was out west. So it was like, okay, like this is something I can do. And if it's not my thing, I can just like walk away and not feel like I'd like. Sure. Know, yeah. Uh, Dip your toes in. Yeah, exactly. Dang my feet in the water. But I went and like it was just it was different than what I was expecting. I don't know entirely what that means, but I, I just, I remember feeling like I didn't have anything in common with anyone, mm-hmm. and yet I had so much in common with everybody. It's I get a duality that. that I seem to have. Yeah. Um, but then I just remember someone sal- telling the story um, about like a lie they had told, and it was the most innocuous lie. <laughs> But like it was like it was the most innocuous but like consequential lie and, and like it was a small lie but like it just the way that it had like been a burden for them and like how they had like dwelled on it and then finally like came forward and like admitted that they had lied about it. It just reminded me of a lie I had told myself, so I just opened up and started sharing. I was like, fuck this feels good. Can yeah. I swear? All you want. <laughs> yeah. I, noticed, I was like, fuck, this stopped. feels good, to be honest. Yeah. I forgot what that feels like. And then I just think that that's kind of get like, you kind of get drunk on the honesty. <laughs> that's an interesting take. That's, I had a, one of the guys that helped me get clean. I just remember him saying from the podium once at a meeting, like, I went to fucking Home Depot last week and I got five pieces of sheetrock and I got out to the truck and it was on the bed and I, I looked at the receipt and they charged me for one fucking sheet. 
And I just felt that initial, like, yeah, I got one over on him. Yeah. And instantly that just turned into, I can't do this. I have to go back in. And I went back into fucking Home Depot. (laughs) You should have seen the look on this girl's face. And they were just so grateful that I would own up to this. And it made me feel so much better. And that is, it's the, that's the shit that keeps people sober. I love the ideology behind you get sober physically, mentally, and spiritually, and you relapse in the reverse order. So if spiritually you're kind of not doing so hot and (laughs) mentally all of a sudden those are like freebies and you're not going back into Home Depot, now you're in dangerous waters. You don't call yourself out for that shit. You're not necessarily going to drink, but you're closer than you've been. Right. You know? Drunk on honesty, that's cool. I like that. It's fucked up, man. You're talking about when you got clean, just a lot of things coming up. And this breaks my heart at the bar. It fucking takes a huge spiritual toll on me. I was with a girl last night who was one of my dearest friends. She's amazing, having a really tough time with a breakup. And drunk at the bar last night, trying to deal with it. And she's just like vibrating with sadness that she won't let herself feel. And all of a sudden, we start talking and things just start bubbling up. And it's steering way away from the breakup itself and going into like deeper childhood shit that's coming up and the tears are flowing and things are getting really personal and intense and all of a sudden she notices it and she just stops. She's like, what am I doing? I'm getting too vulnerable and just like clams up, doesn't let herself feel this and instantly says, can I have some more whiskey? It's like, oh my God, it just breaks my fucking heart to hear that and to see it and to be wrapped up in it. It's tough. It's a weird business. It's a weird business to be in, especially from our perspective. We're at 5 a.m. I'm sober dealing with this. I'm not pouring one for you, one for me, and we're wallowing in our own shit. It's just me constantly holding space for that. It's crazy. So, L.A., LA. you're sober for how long there before you come back east? Uh, there, I was only out there that time for like eight months, and I came back because I was like, I can't handle this. And I went back a year or year and a half after that. Okay. So, all right. I didn't know that. And you were sober throughout? Yes. And so you went back to LA. You're in recovery. And how long were you there that, that go round? The next time yeah. after the year and a half, I was there for probably two years at that point. Okay. And that, were you finishing school out there? I finished school the first three months of the initial eight months. <laughs> and then I was there. Okay. Yeah. Because it was like a semester abroad thing. In nice. LA. Nice. And I stuck around for five months and it was just like, everybody was just every, like, so a lot of the people I went to school with stuck out, stayed out there. And it was weird seeing everyone's personality back East, like when we were in Boston and then like out West, it was like everyone just like quickly got really uh, clung to the industry. And like, everyone was just talking about movies and like things they were working on and asking other people what they were working on. And I was like, love movies i could talk about them all the time but i need another conversation <laughs> yeah sure and so it like, got maddening like it was just like i need you guys to be talking about something else <laughs> and that's fucking nuts for us because you and i never shut up about right. movies right. but to be immersed in that <laughs> non-stop literally up to your eyes in it that's got to be tough i've never lived out there yeah it is tough like it's just like because I'm so, it would be so easy for me, like, and I'm totally aware of how easy it would be for me to disappear into that. Mm-hmm. Like, just like think that my career is like everything that I am, and wear it like a, 
like a uniform rather than a merit badge. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Man, it's a fucking weird city. I love it. I've actually grown to really love it, but I love it from afar. <laughs> I'm going back out there soon for a bit. And I'll probably right. want to come back here. And it's just, it's nice to dance in both coasts, I think. But yeah, so it's interesting that you took recovery. You get sober in LA and all this talk about movies. And as a writer, I feel like you internalized it into a movie that you wrote about right. addiction. <laughs> The Frog March. Yeah, kind of. Well, like, I, I think I've, I, we've discussed it before. Like, it was like a year, probably a year of being sober because I'd come back here. I'd come back east. And I was like, it was when I'd gotten sober for a year, I felt like I was on top of the world. Like, I could do anything. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I love this. And, like, I, I had this idea for a movie. I'm like, you know what? I want to write this down. And I started writing. I'm like, I'm totally not ready to deal with any of this stuff yeah. as much as I think I am. And I just buried it. You just stuck there. You didn't, though. That's the beautiful thing about right. this movie, is that even if you kept this fucking script under your pillow and you're like, I'll never show anyone this, eventually you did. Yeah. And the catharsis behind getting it out on the page in the first place and then taking it to another level where you're, sh- it's like a fourth and a fifth step. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I think when I say, yeah, I guess buried isn't the right way. I, like, I just wasn't ready to, like, exercise it and it wasn't ready to be put down on paper yet. So, like, it needed to be cooked more. Gotcha. It was, like, raw. Yeah. And I was just, like, I, I want to, like, take my time with this. And, like, it's not, like, the time to write it all down. Like, I should really contemplate, like, what it all means and, like, how much it can be. And for those of you who don't know the, the story or haven't seen the film, it's, uh, it's a story about a group of friends who get together in a lake house to celebrate one of them coming out of prison after a five-year stretch. And once they're at the house in this secluded cabin area in the middle of nowhere it's revealed that it's actually a staged drug intervention for one of the friends and once that surfaces all hell breaks loose and the thing i loved about this and i've talked about this ad nauseum i think anywhere where the frog march has come up is that when i got you sent me the script we'd worked together very briefly on something before you sent me the script and i was so hungry for work and excited for anything anything at all and i opened it up and i read the first 10 pages and i'm like fuck, this is going to be a shit horror movie. We're in a cabin in the woods, and I have to do this because I have nothing else going on. And I kept reading it, and I'm like, holy shit. What the fuck? After I finished it, I literally, it's the same reaction I had when I saw Seven and the Usual Suspects, where I hit rewind on the VCR and said, I need to watch this again right now. And I read it again because it wasn't that. And not only was it not that, it was just such... And to this day, I believe it's the most honest portrayal of addiction I've ever seen filmed because there's nothing glamorous about it. There's nothing Hollywood. There's no sparkle. And it was shot that way, too. I'm really, I'm proud of this movie and I'm eternally grateful that you asked me to be involved with it in all the capacities that I have been because you stepped in and played the addict like a fucking champ, man. And I think that really without a ton of acting training and being a writer and a director, like you're an actor, like you're a fucking actor now, you know, you stepped up and you saw this through those feelings you're talking about kind of struggling with and letting sit, you got them on the page and then you showed the page and then you funded and got funded the page and it turned into an image and lots of images and you cut them together. You stepped in and you acted it and now it's a beautiful thing. It's something you've worked through. 
I'm fucking psyched to get this shit streaming so people know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Anybody who's seen it, it's been at a festival. Like, we've done a really nice festival run. We're working on getting it sold, but yeah, I'm proud of that movie, and you should be fucking infinitely proud for the rest of your days of it. I No, I really am. I feel like, you know, it's funny, like, how synchronous that entire experience. Like, there are so many weird, serendipitous things that happened. Like, one, you calling me after, because we had only worked together briefly. I had no idea that you were in recovery. Yeah. And then, like, <laughs> sending you the script and you having you call me and being like, are you in recovery? <laughs> it's like, yeah. There's no fucking yeah. way somebody not yeah. in recovery wrote this. No, but just like that. And then, like, having, like, Joan show up with the exact same camera. Our cinematographer. Yeah. Our, our PA turned cinematographer. Turned cinematographer. And then, like, losing the shirt and have Shibley show up with the same, like, piece of lost wardrobe that he had packed away, like, of, like, three shirts. Yeah, like, that was a funky getting, one, too. This is getting really One of my weird. dear, dear friends, who's a really funny comedian that uh, turned cop. That's another story. But, yeah, he's a, he's a Rhode Island cop now. What? But he AD'd for us one day, and just we lost a shirt. The and only was, piece of wardrobe that I had, basically, that I had to be accountable for. And it was for. a little unique. <laughs> like, it was yeah. a little bit of a unique piece of clothing, and he had the exact shirt for yeah. some reason. So it's like, you know, the, like, I feel like the planet's aligned. And, like, I mean, I, like, it's my baby, and, like, I put my heart and soul into it. But, like, there's so many other moving pieces and personalities and people that brought things to the table that, like, it just would not have been the movie that it is without him, including yourself. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be a part of Including it. Including and especially yourself, I should well, say. Well, thank you. I, it's interesting, too, because I, I, I go back and forth on everything in life. I never stay on one side of the fence <laughs> in a thought for too long. And I've had that we are such a beautiful and unique snowflake kind of thought on all the serendipity we've experienced. And then on the other side of it, I've been like, well, anytime you hear a fucking story about a movie getting made, you hear the filmmakers talk about how this couldn't have happened without the crazy magic of the stars right. that brought all this shit together and it's true i think completing any project takes that little extra fifth element of something to get through and we were just really fortunate to catch it and i'm of the opinion that that is an indicator that this thing needs to be seen by more people it helps people yeah you called me up so many times before we even had a first screening of it and people that you'd shown it to they're just they're crying dude they cried <laughs> And not cried like, oh my God, it's beautiful. But like, oh my God, this touches me in a way that I know someone that needs help or I might need help. It's it's funny because I feel like growing up, like I always wanted to make movies because I like, you know, I mean, I totally want to pretend that I'm just like this down to earth person. But I always had dreams of like, you know, like having a huge premiere in LA and like being on talk show and like, you know, the fame thing, like the sure. glamour of Hollywood and stuff. And so, like, you know, you want movies to do these grandiose things, you know? You want them to be these huge, like, epic events. But it's so funny how that movie, no matter what my, like, kind of expectations for wherever it was going, its success. It's so funny how, like, when we had the, the screening in New Hope, when Daphne came up to me afterwards, and she was, like, this old woman who had been sober, and she just kind of hung around to watch the movie, having no idea what it was about, and she was just, like... She had like tears in her eyes and she's like, can I hug you? And she's like, I've told every single line in your film and like gave me a hug. And she's like, you need to keep doing this. I was like, this is, this is a success. Yeah. Like that's like, okay, I can get used to this. Definitely. And, and it's, it's such a fucking right sized level of it. And I could still picture it blowing up uh, a little bit out of proportion, 
but it is just right sized. I, I still have her 21 year medallion in my pocket right now as we're talking. Like that means something to me. We touched people. It wasn't just something that like we saw through to the end, and it is that too, but it's a little more, and it it adds to it a lot. It's pretty wild. So we're going to get that out there, and I'll certainly not be bashful about letting you know when it happens, <laughs> dear listening public, and uh, we'll let you know where it's streaming and what's going on with it when that that goes down. But right now, you've got uh, another movie right. that you just finished, The Suggestion Box, right. that you also starred in right. alongside, who was the actress you got? Uh, Lauren Paisano. Okay. You and Lauren Paisano. That's Gonna be a good one, man. I, very I, Italian another... film, very Italian cast. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great script. It's another really hard hitting look at the inside of something, and this it's a relationship and a breakup. Yeah. What else? You go ahead. Why the fuck am I talking about this? Wait, no, it's like, your, what your do you movie? Want... You talk about? Yeah, uh, no, it's just about um, like a couple rehashing their greatest hits of of their laundry list of wrongs and mistakes that they made with each other and like dealing with it. Cause I feel like every relationship has that. Like you can break up as many times as you want, but there's always that there's the initial breakup when you're like, this is over. And then like a month or two later, there's like the final confrontation where you just rehash everything. And you're like, you did this, this and this. And they're like, yeah, but you did that, that and that. (laughs) You're like, Oh, okay. Now we're finally expressing all the things that we didn't really express before. For whatever reasons. Yeah. And that's like what the crux of the film is. Uh, I'm excited to see it. I'm actually really pumped about it. And it's it's going to do well. Are, are you... What, what's your story? Are you thinking about a city move ever? Are you happy in Connecticut? Like... I'm... I'm... I'm happy. Yeah. Like, I'm, I feel like I'm happy. The one thing I know that I'm in a good place is like, like geographically, I'm not thinking that like something's going to change my life. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. definitely. So like, I'm like happy kind of wherever I am, but, um, I would love to be in the city just to have like more access to like, you know, like creative people and like the conversations and shooting stuff. Cause I feel like it's always a production when I need to like take two days off to come into the city to like shoot something or yeah. yeah, but you know the grass isn't always greener too. Right. You said it. Access is the only reason I'm in New York. It's a beautiful city and I love it. But as I age, <laughs> and the bar has aged me, I uh, I don't need the fast pace as much. But the access to auditions, to the creative communities, even to shows and culture, and to do things when I'm free, that's why I'm still right. here. And you have a pretty easy link to it. What are you two hours out? Hour and a half. An hour. Hour? Right now, yeah. Shit, stay where you are, man. That's awesome. (laughs) Stay where you are. That's fucking perfect. (laughs) No need to be immersed in all that nonsense here. Any plans to return to LA for pleasure? No. No. I mean, for pleasure, sure. Like every once in a while. Maybe when the wildfires die down and stuff. Oh my God, those poor people. It's fucking terrible. Seriously. It's It's not that. It's earthquakes. It's radiation. I love your fame vision. Just (laughs) uh, That's such a truthful, cool thing. And, uh, this is going to be the uh, I Am Rappaport plugging podcast. <laughs> but I listen to no shit, honestly. If you like the NBA, if you're a fan of the NBA, Barstool Sports, cut me a fucking check, dude. I'm doing all your legwork here. All 50 of my listeners are going to be <laughs> running to your network. He did something with Matt Barnes, who's his NBA journeyman. He's phenomenal. It's the most raw, truthful interview I've ever heard about the NBA. Barnes is the man. New respect for him. But he talked about fame 
just being the most dangerous and intense drug there is. And if you look at it through that lens, even just to aspire to it, it's some sick shit. It's crazy. It's, it's like a dash will oh, do you, yeah. man. That's a spice. It can be nice as a motivator. But I think, again, where you are right now is so healthy. To just be like, no, the art is what I'm into. And creating these things that really move me is what I want to do. And if fame comes from that, so be it. That's wonderful. That would be great to get more money and exposure. Yeah. But the, the actual seeking of fame is like, oof. <laughs> Curb that shit. That's why you need to surround yourself with people who will tell you how it is. And like, yeah, <laughs> this totally. Is like, <laughs> totally. Because <laughs> if you surround yourself with people who are like agreeing with you, you're just like, all right, I'm going to get lost in my own little world. The people that I'm closest to at the bar, the regulars, the people that like the friends over the years that I've made are the most level-headed fucking maniacs on the planet. And they're just, they will. They'll tell you exactly how it is from stand-up comics that we'll have on here to uh, soon-to-be financier producers nice. of this podcast. Like these guys are just no joke, level-headed. It sucks, it doesn't. Straight talk. But it's been fucking great having you in here. Well, thank you for having Get me. Get the fuck back to Connecticut. <laughs> thank you. I love you, brother. Thanks for you coming too. in. Jonathan D'Ambrosio, writer-director of The Frog March. Thanks for listening, guys. I'm Matt Flynn. This has been another fantastic episode of Real Tales from the Bar Side. If you like what you're hearing, feel free to give us a great review. Drop us a rating. Hit us up on at Tales Bar Side on Instagram. And be good. See ya. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Real Tales from the Bar Side. Be sure to tip your bartenders and tip us by subscribing, liking, leaving us a review. That stuff helps like hell, and we really appreciate it. So thank you again. Hope you enjoyed yourself, and we'll catch you next week.